0: Good morning. It is Friday, the 8th of April, 2022. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for including me in your day. I count it a great privilege that you invest time together in this way. So let us work to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the matters of the day. I want you to be aware of a few headlines as we and as we consider how we're going to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus, globally, Ukraine um, certainly tops the headlines today. Dozens of people have been killed and injured after two missiles struck a train, st- train station that was being used as an evacuation hub for um, one of uh, Ukraine's eastern cities. You'll remember that everyone is anticipating and warning that Russia is going to assault the eastern part of Ukraine, um, seeking to establish um, its rule and reign over the Donetsk region of Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. Thousands of people were at the station um, when the missiles struck. Um, people were obviously seeking to evacuate in advance of what is anticipated, a new wave of Russian assault, but the Russians um, didn't allow for that evacuation um, Russia is facing a rising tide of international sanctions, some of which I have to imagine are going to prove difficult for, for Putin to spin in his own country, even via his state media. Um, one of those um, things that happened yesterday, Russia was suspended from the human uh, from the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. Now, the members of the Human Rights Council of the United Nations almost make a farce of the thing itself, but it is significant that they suspended Russia. Russia then quit um you know if you if you don't like that someone fires you you can quit um and that's basically what happened putin has two adult daughters they were also um sanctioned yesterday as a part of, eff- of efforts to keep putin from assets that he is um undoubtedly hiding through relatives and friends around the globe um speaking to the united nation ukraine's foreign minister said that it, surely it would not take further atrocities to motivate further sanctions and if there are further sanctions one wonders after we have all seen not only what russian soldiers did in terms of atrocities committed in bucha but other um other suburbs uh, outside of kyiv um one wonders w- what what is the world waiting for if there are other sanctions i mean bring them and bring them now um Speaking again to the U.N., Ukraine's foreign minister called for a complete embargo on Russian oil, not just from the United States, but from others around the globe. And then he narrowed his wish list down to just three things, weapons, weapons, weapons. Yesterday, the U.S. Senate did unanimously formalize the Biden administration's ban on Russian oil, Um, They also revoked Russia's most favored nation trade status. They also uh, revoked that same status for the nation of Belarus. Um, And the Senate also uh, resurrected a World War II era program yesterday. It's called Lend-Lease, through which the executive branch can quickly send weapons and supplies to Ukraine um, without returning every time to Congress to, uh, to ask for more funds to do so. In other, I mean, really, the, this would be topping the news not only here, but around, but I think around the world had um, have had we not had such a need to focus on Ukraine. Um, but Ketanji Brown-Jackson became yesterday the first black woman to be confirmed in a nomination to be seated as a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. So she's going to join the justices of the Supreme Court at the next vacancy, which we all assume is going to follow the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer, Um, That uh, announcement um, is that he will retire at the end of this term, which leads us all to ask, uh, when is that? What is the term of the Supreme Court? Well, by legal statute, I did my homework so you wouldn't have to. The U.S. Supreme Court's term begins on the first Monday in October and goes through, get this, the Sunday before the first Monday in October of the following year. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. However, uh, the court is typically in recess from late June or early July until the first Monday in October. And so the vacancy in terms of everyone's experience will be created, you know, in just a couple of months from now when the Supreme Court goes on recess for the summer. You'll want to know this as well. Um, in Minneapolis, prosecutors declined to charge the Minneapolis SWAT officer who shot and, and killed um, Amir Locke. Um, they were executing a non a no knock warrant, as you will recall. Now, no knock warrants um, have since been banned in Minneapolis, but a no knock warrant was um, uh, was being uh, executed. Uh, the member of the SWAT team entered um, entered a home. Footage um, shows that Amir Locke was startled awake, as you imagine you would be if SWAT agents entered the room where you were sleeping. He grabbed his legally owned gun, which you can also imagine yourself doing. Um, And prosecutors say that the presence of the gun and locks picking up the gun justified the officer's use of deadly force. Yeah, this is going to um, lead to all kinds of conversations, not only in Minneapolis, but across the country. All right. Bruce Ashford is going to join us um, next. Have you ever lived through a season of life? Maybe you're living in one right now um, where God just seemed nowhere to be found. Well, Bruce has been there. And he's back from there, Um, and he's here to testify. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Bruce Ashford is well-known to us. We, we love reading um, what he writes. We love the acuity of his mind and the, uh, the breadth of his knowledge. He comes to us today with a very, very um, personal look and uh, a lot of transparency. And so um, we're going to look at what he's posted at bruceashford.net when God seems nowhere to be found. Bruce, welcome back.
2: Hey, Carmen. It's great to be on the show. How are you doing this morning?
0: Well, I um it is well with my soul. Um it the apple blossoms are blooming where I am and so it smells great outside. You know, it's it's uh, well, I'm, I'm appreciating the little things.
2: Well, I'm doing well. I had ice cream for breakfast this morning, cooked and cream. <laughs> Jesus may have turned water into wine, but I turn ice cream into breakfast. So I'm I'm in a good mood.
0: <laughs> That's so good. All right, so I am um I am at Bruce dot net. And you have just started to um, unroll a series um, when God seems nowhere to be found. It's, it's, it's intensely personal. It's intensely practical. I'd love for you to, um, if you will, share with us what you share in the opening of this series about your own experiences in life when God seems nowhere to be found.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I've had two seasons in life that were very dark and uh, where i experienced uh, a lot of loss all of a sudden and the more i prayed the worse things got and uh, the first season lasted six or seven years and uh, the the one after that lasted for about two years and these were seasons in which you know i had good uh, christian friends who said good things to me uh, but you know seemed unhelpful at the moment Uh, partly sometimes because they hadn't been through much pain themselves or just because sometimes You you need somebody to sit with you and grieve uh, rather Mm -hmm. than, you know, just constantly offering advice or counsel. And, um, you know, these were times when God seemed very absent to me. I always had a connection with God and a walk with Him since I was young. These were times when God seemed absent and out of touch, uh, very painful um, um, times. And, you know, the book of Job has come for me to represent a a really powerful word. It's a story uh, that shows us that God is there even when he seems he's not.
0: Take us into um, the metalworking image that plays such a helpful role um, in, in this conversation. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so you know, in the in the book of Job, what what you see is that Job was experiencing an absolutely cataclysmic series of events, and what Job didn't know is the same that, thing that we don't know uh, when events happen to us. He didn't know the cosmic battle playing out in the scene behind him. He didn't know that uh, Satan had strutted himself onto the stage and sort of uh, pompously pompously suggested to God that he'd been doing whatever he wanted in the world. Uh, sort of implicitly saying that I've got lots of people who follow me instead of following you, God. And he didn't know that God had said, "Well, fine, let's uh, let's see if if Job loves me." He had no idea. He all he knew is what was happening to him. What was happening to him was horrible. And what we see in the end is that um, God was making a point to the rest of the world and using Job to make that point. And number two, God was bringing depth to Job. He was, you know, when a metal worker in the old days, and I guess today, too, when they uh, got ready to make in the old days a sword or a piece of jewelry or something like that out of silver or gold or, or, um, or uh, iron or whatever, um, the, the goldsmith uh, puts, has to put the metal into an extremely hot fire to melt it in, in order to make it into the, the vessel or the instrument um, that he wants, and, the, and, the, and, you know, the analogy with life is sometimes life gets heated to a very high temperature. And in the moment, it's difficult for us to appreciate that God is making something out of us, uh, you know, that we um, aren't aware of. C.S. Lewis gave another great analogy. He, he said, listen, we, we tell God, hey, God, we'd love for you to come in and renovate the cottage of our life. And, uh, you know, please, you know, fix some things up. And what we mean is please help me out financially a little bit no, make my character a little bit better. You know, we're thinking he's going to come in and paint the walls, you know, and put in some new carpet. But then when he starts knocking out walls and uh, throwing the whole thing into chaos, you know, all of a sudden we turn on God. Well, where are you? Why is this happening? And Louis said, what we don't understand is that sometimes God wants to tear down the cottage to build back a palace. Mm. And you know, that doesn't mean that God is always going to give us wealth in the end or everything's going to be great or perfect in the end, even though it was for Job. What it means is that in terms of our inner life and our walk with him, at the very least, um, God is building back a palace instead of a cottage. And, and the fact is that God can't build, it's very difficult for him to build a spiritual palace for us to give us the depth that we need and so forth without great pain. Because we just tend to not really hang on his every word unless we're in pain um we we tend to you know Lewis had another analogy he said we don't really look up and look God fully into the face and gaze at him for a long time unless we've been knocked flat on our back mm. and so you know pain in life is a is something that we we nobody likes pain i mean in our our go to is to avoid pain. But sometimes, for whatever reason in God's mind, He allows uh, us to experience great pain uh, so that He can work His purposes.
0: Sometimes um, that, uh, that work of God happens through individuals. It always happens through the power and the presence of His Holy Spirit. We access it often through prayer, when Bruce and I return, we're actually going to look back at a series that is also posted at bruceashford.net um on the serenity prayer. It, it sometimes it feels uh, like the conversations about God seeming to be nowhere um need some need some feet in our life. And the serenity prayer really does offer us access into Um, that confidence and that hope. So a conversation about the serenity prayer up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Continuing our conversation with Dr. Bruce Ashford, you can find what we're talking about at bruceashford.net. Bruce, take us back to the series that you wrote on the serenity prayer. Um, You take it pretty seriously, and you help us um, seriously use it in our lives?
2: Yes, yeah, so, you know, I recite the Senate, the Serenity prayer, think about it at least a couple times a day. And uh, for me, it's a wonderful ritual that's helped me more than any therapist really, or a uh, uh, thing like this. Um, I, if you're out there in radio land right now and you're the kind of person that experiences anxiety and uh, uh, maybe regularly, or you have some uh, fears uh, uh, of the future, social anxiety or financial anxiety or fear, you know, fear of financial loss, fear of unrequited love, this sort of thing. The serenity prayer for me represents some very powerful truths about God. Um, For me, I wrestled with anxiety my whole life and I didn't know how to deal with it. Jesus teaching, you know, um, worry about today, no need to worry about tomorrow. I don't know. It just felt like a kind of a throwaway comment for me. I mean, I knew it was true, but I didn't know how to do it. And I started to experience all kinds of anxiety. We were um, we weren't, you know, beneath the poverty level, but we didn't have much. And so I've always had a fear of financial insecurity. Um, I was a socially anxious kid. I mean, I was an extraordinarily, smashingly ugly kid. I had a rack of buck teeth that would make a beaver blush. I had, uh, you know, I had I wore actually wore metal booster cables on my legs, like in the Forrest Gump movie. Can you imagine that they did that to me when I was four? The doctors did, you know. So I, I think maybe some of those things early on, um, you know, set me on the path toward having a lot of anxiety. And the, the Serenity Prayer, the, the short, there's a short version, and a long version. We may not get to the long version this morning, but uh, we'll start with the short version. is incredibly helpful because it says this: um, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So the first line, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Um, There is a really profound truth here and one that we may not want to embrace at first, but it's really important for us and it helps with our inner life. And that is that there are things in life that I cannot change. And really, it's most of life. I can't change other people. I can't change the past, anything that's happened in the past. I can't really, per se, control. I I can change some things about my future, but I can't control the future. So there's so many things in life that we can't change. And a lot of our anxiety comes from needless worrying about things that we can't change. You know, we catastrophize about the future, maybe you know, or we fixate on a a, a difficult person or set of people in our life or financial insecurities that we have. And if we can recognize that there are some things in life that we absolutely cannot change, if we can really come to that um, recognition, then we can kind of put those things out of mind and we can live in the moment, in the day, which is what Jesus was encouraging us to do. Now, I've got something kind of simple that I do, simplistic. I've got a little box at the house, um, a, uh, just a little box that I've got. I don't put a title on it for people to see, but it's my God box. And when I have something that's really challenging in my life, something that I'm gonna tend to worry about or be anxious about, I write out a little prayer and a sheet of paper and I put it in that box. And I, and I hand it over. I hand it over to God so that's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Okay. So we're, we're setting off of our plate the things we can't control and we're not worrying about them. Worrying is needless and useless. Um, the second is the courage to change the things that I can. Now there are some things in life we can change and almost all of those have to do with our own actions our own uh, words, our own disposition toward reality. And often those are the things that we put off that we don't want to change. Uh-huh. I mean, ironically, we want to change the things that we can't, but we're not willing to change the things that we can. And what we can change is our response to reality. We can pray for God to help us, and we can work toward um, facing life on life's terms. What What is the next right thing for me to do today? What can I get done? Sometimes it's a short task list at the house, of things we've been putting off. Sometimes it's asking forgiveness of somebody for something that we did wrong. That's something that's bothering us. Well, that's something we can change. Sometimes it's forgiving another person for what they've done to us. That's something we can change. We can't change other person's actions toward us, but we can change our disposition toward them. And so um, we're taking off of our plate the things that we can't change, which is nearly everything, Takes a lot of worries away, and then we're putting on our plate the things that we can change. and then finally is uh, the wisdom to know the difference. It's a really important line because often there are things that we think we can change, let say so we've got a teenage uh, uh, daughter or son, and, and uh, we're concerned about you know their attitude or their actions or something that's going on with them at school. And we think we can change that often it turns out that it's a situation we can't change that we've got a child who's growing up now and that child is going to have to handle it on the other hand there are things uh that we we think we cannot change that we can change you know say it's financial insecurity there's probably some things we can change in our budget or uh you know an extra way to earn some dollars or, or something like this so the wisdom uh, to, to know the difference um so, I pray this prayer uh first thing in the morning, and I pray it before I go to bed um in the evening and it's so good and some people are are really hesitant to to do anything that's ritual don't we you know they only want to pray mm-hmm. a spontaneous prayer, and I used to be like that. Well, spontaneous prayers are great, and they're fine, but so are ritual prayers. Ritual mm-hmm. is not bad empty ritual is bad, doing things meaninglessly. But ritual is good. God gives us tons of rituals. Go to church on Sundays, you know, read the Bible every day, you know, pray to God every day. These are rituals, and serenity prayer is a ritual for me. Now, if you right, haven't yeah. seen— Like the, the Lord's Prayer. prayer. Yeah. yeah, the Lord's Prayer. And if you mm-hmm. haven't seen the rest of the serenity prayer, we might be able to do a line of it this morning or something. But uh, go online and just look, look up full version of the serenity prayer. The rest of it says, uh, basically, Lord, help us to live one day at a time enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking the sinful world, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever. And so this prayer really focuses us on living in the day, in the 24-hour period that God has given us, and enjoying what God has given us. And when we do this, when we give up the things that we can't change, when we change the things that we can, when we focus on what God has given us at the moment, we have gratitude inside of us and faith and trust. Gratitude and faith and trust push out things like resentment, anxiety, and fear. And so this is the pattern of living that God intends for us. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, and it's so good. It's so good. The whole series, you guys, is so good. Go to bruceashford.net. You're looking for the series on taking the serenity prayer seriously. There are several component parts to the series. Um, and then we are now entering into um, this series with Bruce, which he's just begun to unpack when God seems nowhere to be found. Bruce, as always, thank you so much. We, we so appreciate you.
2: Thank you. It's been great to be on the show. I look forward to talking to you again.
0: That sounds great. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. here's a little tidbit for you. Google now lets you search by combining images and words. You can snap a picture of something and search for it um, in the same way that you could tell Google what you wanted to know more about. Um, So if something is too difficult to describe, snap a picture of it and ask Google what it is or to explain it or what's going on. There you go. Google assisting us through mm -hmm, A.I., That's what's going on there, artificial intelligence. One who is not artificially intelligent, but actually intelligent and intelligent in the things of the Lord as well is Chris Martin. He joins us next. All right, joining us again today, Chris Martin. You know him from his Terms of Service blog and his book by the same title, Terms of Service. Uh, we also uh, know him from our friends over at Moody, where he serves in, in the area of, um, of media and social media. Chris, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me again, Carmen. Good to be back.
0: Absolutely. All right. Uh, here's something about which I know nothing and am hoping you will explain it all. Decentralized Web 3.0. Mm-hmm. Is the web not just the web? Is the web becoming something more than the web or less than the web? What's going on in the web?
1: <laughs> um, okay, so a quick internet history lesson. Uh, and I'm going to get some dates wrong here, but I'll give rough estimates. So once upon a time when the internet really became uh, broadly usable, you know, beyond the first academic computers that were connected to share like research, that was really the first internet. Uh, you had, you had, colleges like Stanford, University of California, other colleges sharing research over computer networks. That was the first real internet. But kind of once it jumped beyond that to a sort of global web, you had what was called Web One, which was often called like the read internet, where um, you you and I, you know, common users, if we would have been trying to use the internet back in this time, this would have been like the late 80s, early 90s. Um, We would have been able to consume a lot of content on the Internet, but unless you had a sort of expertise, like a technical expertise um, similar to maybe what we would consider like coding knowledge today, you weren't really creating content on the Internet. You were mostly reading content on the Internet. Um, That was Web 1. Web 2 started in like the late 90s. Most people placed it around like 1998 or so. Shortly after Windows 95 came into our homes and like we got AOL and some of these more popular internet services. we're now in Web 2. So it started in the late 90s, 98 or so, and has continued to today. So Web 2 significantly longer than Web 1 by most estimates as people measure these things. And Web 2 is called the read-write internet, where you not only can read content off of the internet, like consume it, like you could in Web 1. And obviously we do that in Web 2 by reading news articles or watching YouTube videos or whatever else. Uh, but also what Web 2 has done is it's made it a lot easier for people like you and me to create content on the internet. That's the right part of what I just said. So back in the early 90s, I wouldn't have known the first thing of how to create content on the internet, uh, not only because I was like three, but also because it was just very hard to do so. There weren't tools for the common person to write a blog or to create video clips or to run a podcast or things like that. Well, today, obviously, uh, and this has increased over time since the late 90s it has become much easier for normal people like you and me and any of our listeners to create content on the internet. The most obvious version of this is social media. Um, social media is, uh, I mean, if you just look at the words social media, we're creating media for the purposes of being social. And so social media has really defined web two, as we understand it, like, um, we're creating content or writing content, either, you know, Writing is a general kind of technical term. Some of us may be recording audio content or recording video content But we are creating content for the internet now here's what's interesting about web 2 is There are two or three companies that really own the internet when it comes to web 2 You have Google and you have meta slash, you know Facebook. Um, Those are the two biggest internet content companies out there Uh, They. You know, they may or may not have monopolies depending on which lawmakers and lawyers that you ask, but they really have a sort of cultural monopoly on like 80% of internet content out there, it certainly feels like. So these companies own the internet, own internet content really, and and the majority of the platforms that work, that we're riding on, they own and they profit from. So, you know, Facebook posts, meta posts tens of billions of dollars of profit every quarter, uh, because of the content you and I and everyone else makes on Facebook, we don't get paid for that. We don't make any money from that um, unless you know we're like an influencer or whatever and we've leveraged our following to sell ads or something like that. But we don't make – we don't get cut a check from Facebook because of all of the interaction our content gets. In Web3, which is – we're kind of entering into Web3 but it's still very early on in the life of Web3. That has been called the read-write own internet, where there's a future in which there's a social media platform, imagine you know the next version of a Facebook, where uh, you not only get to read or consume content, Or create or write content like we can today, but you can also actually own your own content So like when you write content on Facebook or post a video on YouTube today You don't own that and for the most part you're not getting paid for that Some of these platforms have creator programs where a youtuber can get paid when ads run on their video They can get paid, you know, like two dollars for every thousand views they get or something like that Uh, But most of the time we're not getting paid for this social media content we create However, there's a future in the future of social media as an example, where let's say you post a video on Facebook or an audio clip from the show on Facebook. And for every like you get, you get a quarter. And for every comment that somebody makes, you get 75 cents. And for every share, you get a dollar. And eventually, you can actually start to create a living of some sort, at least a hobby or you know a sort of side hustle, just by the revenue that you generate based on your social media activity. Um, this is part of the decentralized web and web three where big companies like facebook or google get less share of the revenue and more ownership is given back to the user like you and me and and there's less kind of major corporate you know big tech as it's often called has a lot less influence in the perceived future of web three now um I remain very skeptical that it will shake out this way. I think that one way or another, big companies will find a way. I mean, you see Facebook pushing into the metaverse and all and, and all of these companies trying to kind of get a foothold in Web3. Uh, so I'm kind of interested to see. If this utopian idea of the internet where all of us kind of own our little bit and we all can kind of maybe generate a living from what we do online, I'm really interested to see if that shakes out the way a lot of optimists think it's going to. I'm I'm hopeful, but I am kind of skeptical just because I've seen how this stuff has worked in Web 2 and I'm just not so sure.
0: Well, and then when the fairness doctrine people um, get into it, there's no chance that individuals are going to be allowed to prosper because at some point it's going to all be squished down and everyone will need to profit equitably. And that's never going to happen because people prefer some content over other content. And we're in a culture that doesn't want to reward Particular content producers over other content producers. Like it's a, it's a, it's a great challenge. All right, there's more, more to come in this conversation. Web3, that was a fantastic um, explanation. No one could have done that better. Thank you so much. You did mention in the midst of all of that the metaverse. Um, I have read some conversation about the metaverse ending the mega church. What says uh, Chris Martin about the metaverse and the mega church?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, I, uh, I am very skeptical of church in the metaverse in the same way I'm skeptical of Mm. web three. In fact, more strongly. So now let me say this, I'm all about churches innovating and, um, I'm all about churches getting into places where people are like, I, I, I do a lot of consulting with churches on how to better use social media. And I think in large part churches, took too long. uh, Many churches took far too long to adopt social media and to figure out how to incorporate social media into their ministry. Um, And I think churches in general could do a lot better job at that. Even churches that I work with who are on social media simply aren't doing it very well. Um, And that's part of why I'm working with them and and why they come to me for some help. But I think um, when we look at the metaverse, there's uh, it 's sort of like when churches first started getting on social media. I think there 's a lot of good in doing it. I think there 's a lot of um good ministry that could be done there um i don 't think attending church in the metaverse is- atten- is being part of local church period i just don 't mm-hmm. uh, i i um and and some people are not going to like that and are some people are very passionate about this now. do I think it 's like morally or ethically wrong that a church have a church service in the metaverse. Mm, No, Um, I I feel a little bit like church in the metaverse. Like I do about church being streamed on the internet. I think for those who like, for some reason can't attend church uh, it's better than it was, you know, back in like the eighties when homebound members of a church, you know, couldn't, you couldn't consume the church service at all. Um, I think, however, this, uh, if it, Kind of extends beyond this sort of necessity. I do not think gathering as a local church in the metaverse or or via a Facebook. You know live stream like many of us have had to do the last couple of years off and on um, I do not think that is an adequate replacement for the gather, the physical gathering of the local body of Christ I just don't think it is um, I think I I think all of the cases that have been made for it are incredibly weak, Laughably weak uh, mm-hmm. frankly, and um, I like I said, I, I really applaud the innovation and I think it's worth um, exploring uh, but I think if we start to try to equate uh, gathering in the local church in the metaverse with gathering in the local church physically. Uh, we have we have lost the plot, and we will reap what we've sown pretty quickly. Uh, and I think we should really be cautious about that, while also not being afraid of it. I think we should engage mm-hmm. it wisely and intelligently and figure out how to do good ministry there. But I think when we start to see it as a sort of equivalent to or replacement for the gathered local church, we've lost our way.
0: I think that the testimony and witness of uh, people who live in places where it's illegal, and yet they still, by cover of darkness, with secret knocking and, you know, they're, they're gathering in secret with one another. They could be gathering, um, you know, very, very safely uh, without ever gathering if they were willing to sure. forego, um, you know, the physical... Uh, getting together with the body of Christ. But if people are willing to make so many sacrifices to actually physically be together um, in places where it's illegal to be a Christian, I ought to at least be willing to make um, the the very, very minimal um, investment of time and energy that it requires for me to get myself from wherever I am to one of the millions of gatherings of Christians happening every single week— um, every day of every week, almost every hour of every day across the United States of America. And so um, I think we're a people of excuses and convenience, and um, and I think we're lazy. I think it comes down to that. And I think that um, the metaverse is only making it easier for lazy people to be lazy Christians. So that's my um, terrible... Uh, Yeah, I didn't. There wasn't much grace in that. And so, yes, obviously, if you are shut in and there is some actual physical reason that you cannot attend, I would argue the physical body of Christ as the church should come to you. Um, You should not be shut in by yourself and required to attend worship electronically. We should figure out a way to get to you. So there you go. Um, Chris, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, um, really love to just hear you reflect on Maggie's second birthday, as you did in a recent um, Terms of Service post. We're talking with Chris Martin, who, among other things, is Maggie's dad. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. Really, We're talking with Chris Martin. Um, we normally talk about um, Internet things. Terms of Service is Uh, the place that you can find him on Substack. You can also read his book by the same title, Terms of Service. Um, Today, uh, we're going to just spend a moment with Chris reflecting on his daughter's second birthday, which is more a reflection about Chris than it is about Maggie. Um, Chris, take us into your thoughts as a dad, because this isn't just Maggie's second birthday. This is your second year um, being a dad. And so um, happy Father's Day.
1: Yeah, happy early Father's Day, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, every once in a while, I uh, I, I write. I obviously my newsletter and my book and every all, all, virtually all my writings about social media and the internet and how it's changing us. But sometimes um, I need to take a little break from that, as I'm sure you can understand and plenty of people can understand. And and I think sometimes reflections. Like this can remind people, like I'm a real I'm a real person, not somebody who just writes about social media all the time. Um, so this week, given that it was my daughter's second birthday on Wednesday, yeah, her name's Maggie Magnolia is her full name. Um, it was her second birthday, so she was born. The first week of April, um, right before or right at, you know, kind of at the beginning of the pandemic is an interesting time because it was before we knew that the coronavirus was airborne, but we knew it was a big deal. So like we went to the hospital and nobody was allowed to come visit or anything like that. But also because we didn't know it was airborne, like we didn't have to wear masks or get tested or anything like that. And so it was a really odd time. That she was born in. But um, yeah, I the first two years of her life have not Happened quite like I would have imagined or necessarily desired, given, you know, she's been a pandemic baby, as they're often called. Um, But they have happened. And for that, I am grateful. I always wanted to be the dad of a daughter. I'm not really sure why. I don't know if it's just because I've seen friends who are girl dads and how they kind of dote on their daughters, or because I've seen kind of cultural examples of. A sweet relationship between a father and a daughter uh but i think also it's maybe just because i'm i'm not a particularly like manly man and i wonder like how, how would i be a good dad to a boy perhaps one day i'll f- I'll, I'll learn how to do that uh, and i and i hope to i think that'd be great but i think what i've really learned in these first couple years is uh how weak i am and how okay that is i guess is how i would describe it um you know i've never particularly been a macho person I played high school football I played sports in high school that kind of thing but I've never been a you know a a hunter kind of guy or a you know like a a really macho kind of guy so I've always been somewhat acquainted with my weakness but I'm also a super driven person and tend to be pretty good at what I set out to do I don't like failure so I try to avoid it at every turn Um, but I think being a parent anyone who's listening and is a a parent um, parenting is is a series of failures that you just learn to deal with, I guess you could say. Hopefully more micro failures than macro failures, but um, parenting provides an ample opportunity for weakness and failure. And I think the, you know, it's good for us when we are parenting or whatever uh, to to extricate and identify and extricate, like identify and remove the sin that we see in our parenting, like, like the selfishness or, or whatever else. And I think that's what I've seen most in my own life is my own selfishness. It's good to to see that and identify it and, and get it out. But I don't think our weakness has to be dismissed. It shouldn't be dismissed. I think our weakness can be embraced and that our true strength, that that really true strength is nothing without a recognition of our weakness. I, I came across a quote a couple of weeks ago. I'm a big fan of John Green, who's a novelist. He lives outside Indianapolis or in Indianapolis. And, uh, he's a novelist a youtuber just a really good thinker and really careful profound writer he said in a 2016 commencement address at Kenyon college where he was a student he said at the end of it he said the people who supported you to this point they are the people you want to be when you grow up they have been strong for you but also weak for you and i i think as i thought about that as i listened to that and And kind of reflected on it, I realized that like I will be strong for my daughter at moments because I have to be Um, like I'll be strong. I'll I'll be a rock. I'll be there and strong when I need to be. But also I hope that I'll have the courage to be weak for her. And I really think um, it does take courage. Sometimes we're weak without choice. Uh, because of our sin, because we recognize hey i messed up and i 'm i 'm weak here, but sometimes I think we need to have the courage to willingly be weak, whether for a child or for other people that we love, so maybe a parting message this morning is is we can find maybe we can all find the courage to be weak for someone we love uh, in the coming days. And maybe that'll be by choice and maybe it'll be just by force of circumstance. But I think it does sometimes take courage to be weak, or at least takes courage to recognize our weakness and embrace it.
0: So there's something here. My mind was was going several places as you were talking. One is just the testimony of my husband's grown children now um, who will say, um, about something they're doing now. Well, Dad, that's, you know, that's because you said this or you did this. Like, it, it is amazing when once they're adults how much they have to say about the things that were said and done when they were little. Jim doesn't even remember the things that they're recalling, but they were obviously really significant to them, not only at the time, but things that formed them um, and, and still um, influence how they live today. The other thing that, as you were just talking about, Being weak, not only being strong, but being weak. I mean, my mind, Chris, went to Jesus in the garden, Um, Mm -hmm. and I and 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 the arrest, and um, I just you know the the time of prayer, the submission, but then the disciples you know sleeping instead of praying, and then Peter pulling the sword, thinking that that's what he's supposed to do, and then Jesus like no, put the sword away, like that's not what we're doing, this isn't the way we're doing it, like. Um, the weakness of the cross, which is the ultimate demonstration of strength, and yet we don't get it when it's happening. Like, there's something in all of this for Holy Week um, as the children of God, um, and, you know, yeah. in terms of the way the Father in His strength becomes ultimately weak for us. Like, there's something there in all of this, and so I wanted to highlight that as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Amen to that. And so, yeah, as we enter Holy Week this coming week, I think— um, you know, a lot of times, depending—it just really depends on kind of your culture and your per, your personality and your perspective, but I think a lot of times we see weakness as something to be avoided, uh, whether in parenting or in work or in the church, and I think um, while while sin should be avoided and should be removed, I think we can sort of—coming uh, to terms with our weakness is one of the ways that we are most able to be strong, and I think that it's important to recognize weakness, not only in parenting, but in all aspects of life.
0: Amen. Amen. Hey, brother. Thank you so much. Um, have a wonderful, uh, have a wonderful Holy Week um, and a wonderful Easter. We won't talk with you until after, um, until after Easter. And so, you know, part of the joy of being the dad of a daughter um, it, on Easter, and especially this one. I mean, at two, she's going to be like you know basket carrying and filling, and your heart's going to be walking around outside your body. And I just think you need to know that in advance.
1: I'm really excited.
0: Yeah, I'm totally really fun. Yes. All right, that's Chris Martin. You can find him at his Terms of Service blog um, on Substack. You can also find him at Moody Publishers. As always, Chris, thank you so much. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right. Thank you. Um, Thank you again so much for this time together today. Um, The conversation with Bruce Ashford has led many of you to ask about the full serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom, your wisdom to know the difference, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make things right if I surrender to his will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. All right, that's the full serenity prayer. Really helpful to read the whole thing. we got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio.